Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode number 25, Tantalizing Travel Tales, part two. This is Trevor Ranges, your co-host to Talk Travel Asia. As always, I'm here with Mr. Scott Coates. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing good, Trevor, and you're in Bangkok, that's right? I am in Bangkok, yes. And I am here in Kuala Lumpur, and you may hear thunder in the background now and then. It's kind of uh, rainy season has kicked off again, and every night, about six or seven, it tends to chuck. So if you hear some sounds in the back, that's what it is. But uh, when you said 25, I realized, man, we're getting very close to a year doing this podcast, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess it has been about a year. We've been doing two episodes a month, and uh, we've been recording from all over the region, sometimes together, sometimes separately, uh, and every other week with uh, somebody interesting and new. Yeah, it's been a blast. And I remember when we started, you kind of think, oh, how are we going to keep coming up with ideas, but sort of, I think we found we do one show and then that show kind of gives you an idea for something else. And this is an example of, of that. We just for fun did one tantalizing travel tales part one a while back. I think that was episode 13 and it was fun. And we looked at the numbers of listeners and, and a lot of people listened to it. So we thought, you know what, why not give people another dose of a few travel tales? And I know in uh, Travel Tales 1, I shared my story, The Legend of the Golden Monkey that went down in Nepal. What did what did you share? Um, I talked about uh, losing my bag on the, the bus <laughs> that drove away from me in, in Batambang. Yeah. Uh, That's a good one. And, uh, and I told a hitchhiking tale from Australia, and I'm actually going to tell another hitchhiking tale here today. Right, yeah, and I told one about international ciclo races in Hue, Vietnam. Quiet as a mouse in Mesot, and actually I have yet another... Well, actually, this is a rat story, but similar family of animals. Huh. And uh, I, I see in our notes that I did a fine line between adventure and stupidity at the mm. Khao Yai National Park. Did I talk about that one when we went out hey, looking yeah. for... Really? All right. Yeah, well, there is definitely some more stupidity that's going to be shared here today. I think I have a little stupidity to contribute as well. But before we get too far into it, uh, we want to thank our sponsor for this episode. It is... Greg's Bangkok. And full disclosure, Greg is a friend, but he has a very, very cool uh, travel app that has a whole bunch of self-guided tours in and around Bangkok area. I think there's about 10 there or so, and the idea is you put it on your iPhone, strap on the headphones, and it just guides you through different little areas. Yeah, it's a great app. I talked about it last time as saying uh, I'm, I'm not just a friend uh, and a fan. I'm also a customer. I have the app, and uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I bought one myself, and actually the first person that sends us an email saying, I want the app, we will send you a code to get it for free. If you want to buy it, you can go to uh, the internet, app.greg2differ.com. That's also in the show notes. So thank you very much, Greg's Bangkok. So we've gone back into the tickle trunk. We've come up with some more stories. Uh, who should kick it off, Trevor? Why don't you take, uh, kick it off, Scott, seeing as that uh, this, this first one here that you have, uh, I was actually a part of. <laughs> yeah, you were. Now, let's start this off by drinking and driving is not responsible. You shouldn't do it, and I try and avoid it. However, 
Um, this one was in Bangkok, and it was in uh, the old part of the city, an area called Ratonakosin Island, which uh, is where the Grand Palace is, and Wat Po, which is the temple that's famous for the big reclining Buddha. And you, um, my now wife, and was there anyone else with us that night? You know, I'm not sure who we were cruising around with. Uh, <laughs> it's a little hazy. Okay, well, let's just say it was the three of us. Um, we went to a place called Amorosa, and Amorosa is kind of on the third floor of a small boutique hotel called Arun Residence, and it's directly opposite Wat Po, or the Temple of the Dawn, and they were really clever. They had a tiny, tiny little bar with a great view. Word got out, it caught on, and it kind of grew in size, and would you say it's still one of kind of the better places for a nice Riverview drink? Yeah, I think uh, I, I pop in there whenever it's around sunset and uh, and I want to just relax and enjoy the view and, and have a drink. Um, not as big a fan of the restaurant downstairs, uh, no. which I think is just a little bit overpriced because it is kind of touristy. But mm. the bar up top there at Amorosa, yeah, definitely a great spot to, to watch the sunset over the temple. Yeah, and it, it's pretty far away for, for you and, and my wife and myself. But So we made the trek out there. And I'm sure we'd had some drinks somewhere before or else we got really drunk just there, which is also a very strong possibility. I remember we would always, I would always have a bottle of Jack Daniels because one of the neat things in a lot of parts of Southeast Asia is you can buy a bottle of spirits. If you don't finish it all, they put a marker or sticker on it and you can come back and finish it. So I remember going there thinking, I've got a bottle of Jack Daniels. And it was a very good chance we finished what was left and maybe got into a second bottle. But we I, were there. I think, uh, yeah, I think that it was one of those situations where <laughs> there was just enough left that, well, we might as well finish it, no right? Way. And, yeah, and uh, and then yeah. we were going to head up to, like, towards the Khaosan Road area, and that's why we needed to get a ride, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd probably been in Thailand. I was there for 15 years, and I'd probably been there maybe 11 or 12 years at this point. And I'd say for the whole time, I'd always kind of wanted to drive a tuk-tuk. And I, I'd seen someone do it. Of course, anything's possible. But in all my times asking, like, just never happened. The guy was never willing to go for it. And so we come out of Amorosa, and you're right along the river, and you have to sort of walk out of a dark lane, maybe 150 meters out to the main road. And there's always, like, a tuk-tuk driver sitting out there wanting a fare. And sure enough, there's, there's Buddy. He's there. And he's smiling. He's enthusiastic. And... Like, we, we definitely shouldn't have been driving. But I remember walking up to him, and I just kind of half-jokingly right away said, like, told him where we wanted to go. We wanted to go kind of north on the river up towards Kalsan Road. And I said, like, yeah, can I drive? And that guy was super enthusiastic. He was like, yeah, yeah. And I remember that should have been the first sign. Actually, it probably was a good idea that I was driving because we both decided he was pretty classic. No, yeah, I think that's what happened. I think what happened <laughs> was that, like, we told him we wanted to go, and, and he was a little soused, and, and he was like, oh, no, man, I'm not driving up there. And then <laughs> I think somebody, you or I, proposed, like, well, why don't you give it a shot, right? And the guy was like, yeah, all right. Like, I think he was more keen to let you drive than, yeah. like, he was more responsible. He's like, I'm not driving this thing. And, and he thought that, that you would do a better job, I guess. I think I did do a reasonable job. And so you get in this tuk-tuk and it's got handlebars like a motorbike. Your gas is on, on the right hand. You kind of twist it. And there's a gear shifter between your legs. But the clutch is a little jerky. And, and you know, yeah. getting into the groove, of it, I, I jerked this around a bit. But, yeah, there's a, a wee bit of grinding. <laughs> and it was probably only a, a two-kilometer drive. But I remember he was, like, hooting and hollering and making more noise than us. And, like, he definitely thought it was great. And we got there smoothly and relatively safely. And, uh yeah, my, my dream was fulfilled of driving a tuk-tuk. Probably not the conditions that you should do it in, or I would hopefully not do it again. 
But uh, yeah, it was great to finally nail a tuk-tuk drive and avoid uh, driving with a very drunk driver. Yeah, you're right. You did the responsible thing there. <laughs> I had no choice, Trevor. Yeah, that no, that was I was there. That was good times. I'm glad you got to do that, and I'm glad I got to experience it with you. Yeah. Now I know you seem to have a thing for hitchhiking, so I see your title is breaking hitchhiking rule number one, with at least a few others broken along the lines. What what is this all about? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been I've done a lot of hitchhiking since I was a kid. Um, growing up in Vermont, uh, Vermont's not dissimilar to probably like parts of Canada where, you know, it's pretty safe and people are pretty friendly. And and New Zealand is is a lot like that. And I've had some really great okay. I've had some really great experiences hitchhiking in New Zealand where people have in, invited me into their homes for dinner you know, just because it was dinner time when I was hitchhiking and they'd be like, why don't you spend the night, you know? And, uh, you know, in most parts of America, you probably wouldn't want to say yes to that. Right. Um, but here we were, uh, this is when I was about 21 years old and, okay. uh, me and, uh, two Canadian guys and, and my buddy Brian from Utah, uh, we were hitchhiking from Dunedin to Queenstown on the South yeah. Island. We were all living down in Queenstown, working at the ski areas down there. Right. And, uh, yeah, we needed to get back from Dunedin to Queenstown, which is about a three and a half hour drive. And, uh, we walked out of town a mile or so and started hitching and this guy stops, uh, and, and we ask him like, Hey, where are you going? And then he goes, well, where are you going? And, and right. And, and like, this is kind of rule number one. Like if you get a weird vibe from the guy right off the bat, you shouldn't right. get in the car, you know? Right. And normally when you ask somebody where you get, where they're going, they, they're going to tell you, right. They're not going to be like, where are you going? So we're like, yeah, we're going to Queenstown. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. That's where I'm going. You know? <laughs> so we're like, yeah, great. Yeah. And we pile into the car. Now, uh, a little more than halfway along the, the drive, which I think I said is about three and a half hours. Yeah. He tells us that he needs to stop in this small town along the way to visit his uncle. Um, at the time He's I thought like, it, he was like 70 years old, this guy. So I'm like, wow. All right. Yeah. Your uncle must be getting up there. You know, you better visit him <laughs> while you can, you know? Yeah. So, uh, as we're rolling into this town, he says that uh, he's going to drop us off in, in the main intersection of town and then he'll go visit his uncle and then come back and, and meet us about an hour later. Right. Yeah. And he's like, hey, do you guys, uh, do you have any money for lunch? You need some money? And he's like trying to, he, <laughs> he opened his wallet up and he's trying to offer us money to, to buy some food. And we're like, no, right. man, we don't need any money. And we just assume this typical friendly New Zealand guy, you know, just being nice to some, some young hitchhiking kids that are obviously too poor to buy a bus ticket. Yeah. Sure. Um, or buy his way into your pants. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, my the Canadian guys had some big backpacks because they were cruising or they were in, in Dunedin a bit longer maybe. Um, okay. and, and they asked him if they could pop the boot and get their gear out. And he's like, no, it'll be fine. You don't want to carry that stuff around, you know. Um, oh, and, really? and that's got to be rule number five or six, right? Not to let, <laughs> <laughs> not to let the guy drive off with your stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so off he drove. And, uh, you know. For a while, we were discussing how weird the whole thing is. I mean, you should never get in the cab when some guy's not telling you where he's going. And and then, like, he was in his 70s. He's like, that, he's got an uncle? Yeah, right. Like, that's such a scam, yeah? And, like, mm -hmm. why, why was he offering us money? It was so weird, you know? So he told us he was going to be back in an hour. And, like, an hour and ten minutes later, we were all just, like, cursing ourselves, cursing this guy. If we ever see him again, like, all the things we're going to be doing to him. Um, and then he rolls up like five minutes later. Hey, sorry, I'm late. Picked us up, put us back in the car, um, <laughs> drove us all to our respective front doors. 
Like that's, that's how nice awesome. the guy was. Uh, and, and we felt so bad for just saying bad things about him. But, uh, you know, hitchhiking, you got to be careful. Uh, crazy things can and do happen to you. Um, this just happened to be one where it just seemed a little too weird, uh, but it actually wasn't. Yeah, man, that almost mirrors the story I had. One of the only times I hitchhiked in New Zealand. Crazy looking guy picked us up. Scared the whole time. He had a huge knife on his hip. Crazy big buggy rapist eyes but he drove us right to the door of the place we are going as well yeah incredibly friendly people it's a great place to hitchhike uh i hitchhiked all over australia and, and had some crazy things happen there some guys picked me up to take me on a drug deal and then drove me back and dropped me <laughs> off right where they picked me up and they're like hey thanks for coming along you know um and, and australia is a little bit sketchier uh but i don't know it's, it's an adventurous way to travel yeah, I don't have any hitchhiking stories, and this one's very tame than my next one compared to that. Man, wow. All right, well, let's hear it. Yeah, this one is more just about a, a nice character and a nice environment and a, and a place that many years later still really kind of warms my heart. But uh, we used to lead trips that would pass through a town called Shengkong. And Shengkong, it, it, Sheng is an old uh, Thai, northern Thai word for town or village or city and uh, Kong because it's on the Mekong River. So this is kind of as far north and east as you could go in Thailand, right along uh, the Mekong River, Laos just on the other side. And, and it's a pretty slow place. It's the border crossing point between Laos and Thailand. So, so most backpackers are passing there, going to or from. There's all kinds of little guest houses, and there's a little tattoo parlor, and there's a few little places to drink. And one of them uh, it's called Teepee Bar. Actually, strangely enough, it, it's a branch of Teepee Bar in Chiang Rai City a few hours away, um, which, if you know the guys that run, it's an amazing that they ever started a second location, but the greatest, nicest bunch of guys. And whenever we'd be in town, we'd end up with our guests and some of the local characters, a guy named Kun Jeep who ran the guest house and the restaurant we'd eat at, and we'd go see Thu. And Thu is the owner, or actually he was the part owner and the manager of this particular location, Really, like, nice guy, good-looking Thai guy, but long, long dreadlocks, super common, and the absolute hippie. Like, this guy could be Bob Marley's brother. <laughs> and you'd just kind of go in this simple concrete room, and you'd sit down on the floor, and, and you'd drink beer chan or order a sang som, which they call rum, but it's actually it's made of sugar cane, isn't it? Yeah, sang som is a, is a rum. I think that people call it a whiskey here, but it's actually a rum. Okay, so I'm, I was right. It's a rum, but yeah. it's, it's not the greatest rum, but it's cheap, and you drink it with soda usually, maybe a bit of Pepsi, and by the end of the day, maybe the next day, you don't feel too hot. But usually as you'd sit there and kind of the booze gets going, somebody inevitably picks up a guitar, and then the night sort of degenerates into a sing-along and whatnot, and it's just a, a great place. And actually, one of the first times I've ever had bamboo worms to eat were there. So bamboo worms, for those that don't know, um, they live in bamboo and they're very clean because they never actually come out of the bamboo plant. They're about an inch long, they're white, and they just eat the flesh of the bamboo. But if you fry them up quickly in a wok with a bit of salt, uh, they kind of taste like buttery popcorn. But that's another story. They go so, well with sang som, I hear. They do go well with sang som and beer chan. So one night we're, we're, we're pretty stewed prunes and, and this guy too that runs the place, I mean, he, he sort of runs day to day, right? And... I mean, he never has an abundance of cash, but I remember one time we were there with guests and one of them ordered a big bottle of Sang Song. And I saw him kind of take the order and then I, you know, he walked there, he walked here, he sort of looked around a bit. I could tell he was looking for something. I didn't know what he's looking for. I now guess he was looking for money. 
because he didn't have any sang sum in the bar, so he's got to go out and buy some. <laughs> and he actually comes up to me, and he was really embarrassed, even though we were quite close and knew him well. But he's sort of like, hey, uh, can you give me, uh, lend me 200 baht? I've got to go uh, buy that sang sum. And I just, like, I kind of killed myself, but I killed myself because I, I'd read something, like, just the week before about just-in-time inventory and how Walmart manages their stock on their shelves and knows exactly, like, when the last item's running out and they get the, you know, the supplier to come and stock the shelves is just-in-time inventory. Mm. And it kind of made me think, like, in this local hippie bar sense, they've, like, run the just-in-time inventory right to like the absolute perfect point. They don't even shell out cash for the product before they need it. So I give them 200 baht <laughs> and it's probably like one thirty in the morning and this literally one road town, super sleepy. He gets on a rickety bike, rides off about five minutes later. He's still not back. And I look kind of out the, the front cause there's no door. It's just all open. And there he, I see him. He comes riding by the shop again, now going the other way. And then he comes back about five minutes later, like with the bottle. So he's found a, a shop or woken someone up, bought a bottle, brought it back, opened it up, and the party continued till, you know, who knows what hour. But it's just kind of a cute story. But, I mean, to imagine these dreadlock people, simple town, country bikes, and just the fact that this guy's asking you for money to go buy the thing just when you need it. It's a, it was a great, great place, and uh, it's no longer there, the TP bar, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, that was just a cute one to me that completely showcased where. In the yeah, that sounds great. I had no idea that there was a TP bar in Chiang Kong. And I've only been to Chiang Kong one time, and it is oh, a really wow. charming little town. But I never would have guessed there would have been a TP bar there. Yeah, yeah, there was. So uh, I'll volley it back to you, Trevor. What's uh, your next story? Um, I think, I don't know what category this would be fall under but this one's called the the mysterious missing bag which kind of goes along it, this isn't something that happens to me often although i do tend to misplace uh things when i travel i tend to almost always get them back okay so i, I don't know what that's about i mean i've lost my cell phones and and tuk-tuks i've left my ipad in, in a bar in cambodia for a day like i seem to uh misplace things quite easily but I guess because I'm kind of okay with, with losing things and not really that attached to my stuff that somehow they seem to find their way back to me. Okay. Well, that's lucky. Um, but uh, this one was many years ago. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, Nat, and I, we were going to Mukok Simulin National Park. Have you been out to the Simulin Islands there off uh, Panga? No, man, I've threatened for about 15 years, but I've never managed to uh, align the planets. Yeah, the Similan Islands uh, is a national park of islands off of the Panga coast in southern Thailand. It's about 14 kilometers off the coast of Kaulak, mm. um, which is about like a two-hour super bumpy speedboat ride. Right. And uh, on that super bumpy speedboat ride, uh, we met a nice Italian woman named Paola. And uh, she was a bit seasick, so we sort of took care of her, and uh, that kindness ended up repaying us a little bit uh, later in the story. Okay. Um, but out there on the Similan Islands, because it's a national park, they only have wooden bungalows and tent camping available for accommodation. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, there's nothing there. I mean, there's a little national park headquarters where you get your food from, but there's mm -hmm. there's no shops, there's no stores, there's no roads, there's there's nothing there except for the beach where the bungalows and the tents are. Right. Okay. So because we're staying in a tent, uh, they gave us a locker to keep our valuables in. 
right? Mm -hmm. So Nat wanted to get some things out of her bag before she put the bag in the locker. So we put the the camera and and some things into my small camera bag. And then she put the the bag in the locker and and shut the padlock and, and gave me the key. And then I put the key into my camera bag. Gotcha. And then I carried that camera bag around with me the rest of that day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so during the day we climbed up uh, the rocks to uh, th- there's like a lookout point over the bay, which is just beautiful. I mean, I should put a photo of this up because the Similan Islands are are spectacularly beautiful. They're arguably the most beautiful islands in Thailand. Okay, wow. and uh, and one of the beautiful things about it is that the beach there is just this powdery like super soft super fine white sand and mm-hmm. and it's the kind of sand that like well you, it's really hard to get off your feet if you get it into your your pockets or into your hair it's going to be there for like weeks you know because it's so right. fine and so sticky so the only time that the bag wasn't physically attached to my body was when we went for a swim and because it's my camera bag and I didn't want to get in any of the sand in it I wrapped it up in, in my t-shirt and I placed it very gently there on the sand so that it wouldn't fall over so that when I picked it up again I wouldn't get sand in the bag okay okay yeah all right so aside from that the, the bag and the key to the locker were with me at all times right and could you see the bag when you left it yeah, I mean, like, because I've traveled a lot and I am conscious of my things uh, and, and safety and whatnot, uh, you know, I like to float every once in a while. So there might have been, like, 30 seconds at a time where I wasn't looking up the beach at the bag. But in general, like, you know, I, I made sure to glance back there and make sure that the bag was still there. And, and I didn't see anybody take it. Okay? Okay. Yeah. So, so that evening after dinner... Um, I needed to get something out of the locker. So I, I took the key, went to the locker, unlocked the padlock, opened it up, and it was empty. Hmm. So our stuff is gone. So we went to the to the little park headquarters desk. And uh, again, the, pretty much the only thing on the beach, except for the tents and a few bungalows. And, uh, you know, they asked me which locker it was in. We all walked over to the locker. Um, they asked if we were sure that we put it in there, which obviously we were because we just got here and we put the stuff in the locker. They gave us the key. Um, yeah. And then they were like, well, yeah, we don't know. We, we have no idea. So they were stumped. And I was like, come on, you can't be stumped. I'm like, there must be a spare key that someone might have used. And, and obviously someone had access to that key and they opened it and stole our stuff. And they're like, no, no, there's no spare key to that locker. Someone lost it many years ago. We remember. <laughs> yeah, that sounds suspicious to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they I'm remember like, that particular locker lost yeah. spare key? No and then way. I'm like, even, even if someone lost it, that means that someone might have found it, right? So someone who works for the National Park might have that key and was hanging onto it. And, and every once in a while, they steal shit out of, out of the lockers, right? right? And they're like, no, no. You know, but everybody who's worked there has worked there for years. They totally trust everybody, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're like, there's, there's no way. There's no key. There's no one got in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're like, someone must have taken the key from you. And I'm like, no, there's no way. Like, I carried that key around with me all day. The only time it was out of my possession was when it was sitting on the sand. And, and like, it's where we were swimming at the beach was, is far enough away from the lockers that it would have had to have been impossible for someone to, like, open the bag up, like, take the key out, run to the locker, open the stuff, take the shit, run back, put the key back in the bag, wrap it up in the T-shirt, and not spill any sand whatsoever, you know? Okay. Yeah. So Paula from the boat earlier, she happened to be friends with the wife of the Phuket police chief. 
So we got the Phuket police chief and his wife out of bed because it was like 9 p.m. at this time and told them what happened. And they told the National Park Service that the island was officially under lockdown and no one would be coming or leaving that island until the police arrived the next day, at which time they were going to search every tent and bungalow on the island until our bag was found. Mm -hmm. I see where this is going. (laughs) Yeah, pretty awesome, right? So the guys who worked on the island were, were freaking out a little bit. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily think it was because they, they stole it, although we had no idea at the time. But, you know, some of them probably had some ganja or some other contraband or something. And, you know, the national park chief, he assured us that, like, no one from his staff would have stolen from us. But at the same time, obviously, the bag's gone and, and they're going to wait until the police show up the next day and, and then we'll sort it all out. Right. Yeah. So I've always been a fan of the Sherlock Holmes stories and and have read pretty much all the books and while brushing our teeth before bed that evening i thought to myself sherlock holmes once said when you have eliminated the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth i literally i I literally remembered that quote and and i told it to nat so what i what i worked through was if it was impossible for anyone to open the locker without our key because we had the only key and, and if it was impossible for anyone to have gotten access to our key, then it was impossible that anyone removed the bag from the locker. Correct? Right. Gotcha. Therefore, the only possible solution was that the bag was never in the locker. So I went to the headquarters and I asked the, the guy there if I could have the keys for the lockers on both sides of our locker. Oh. Yeah, because they were with a padlock. So we went, and I checked both of them, and the second one I opened, boom, bag was in there. Oh. So what, what Nat had done is Nat put the bag in the wrong locker, and because it was a padlock, she just closed the lock, and that was the end of the story. And the lock on our locker was already locked because no one had ever opened it. That's why it was unlocked when I went there, or was was locked, right? And indeed, they had lost the key. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and and that felt so bad. Like everybody was just like, oh my God, I can't believe he called the police. I can't believe like it, it was, she was, she wanted to like leave the island just then and there. And I was just happy we found our stuff. But isn't that ridiculous? That is ridiculous. And you know, I, we, we don't really have time to get into how you dealt with it at the time. But I mean, I could just imagine if you got mad and you're like, someone stole my bag and you started getting accusatory. And then when you find out you're wrong. So it's almost a good lesson. Like, you ever think you're ripped off or you've been done over like it really does pay to be super nice until say the very 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 end right because you never know yeah you know you're right in retrospect because uh and and that was early in my stay in thailand and i I don't believe i I lost my cool necessarily because like i said i'm used to losing my stuff and getting it back again so but at the same time you know when they told me there was there wasn't another key it was it was kind of unbelievable right like it's hard Mm. to be like come on there's no key you know that that one's missing right but it turns out that they were telling the truth you know yeah, you used the old WWSD, what would Sherlock do? <laughs> yeah, it worked out. Fantastic. Well, we're probably running towards the end here, but I'm going to slide in one more quick one. If that's yeah, tell okay. us about the rat. You want to hear the rat one? Okay. I want to hear the rat story. The other story will be saved to part three then. Excellent. Um, in keeping with stories about rodents, this one uh, I'm going to call Mouse Digging Under the Door. Okay. Because that's exactly what it was. Um, so, gosh, probably... The tsunami in Thailand was 2004, so this was probably in 2005. Okay. And we had decided, uh, my company at the time, that we were going to raise some money and we were going to help a, a couple kids in a place called Ban Nam Kem, which is 
say an hour north of Phuket, one of the hardest hit towns during the tsunami. So we're like, yeah, we're going to you know, sponsor a couple of kids, get them through school. We're going to go up there, have a look, meet these kids. So my parents and I flew down to Phuket and we got there at night. So we had to overnight before we could drive up there. And so we just go into Phuket town, um, old, kind of charming little town. And we just get a cheap motel. I kind of call them the Thai businessman hotels. Do you know these places, Trevor? They're like 34 years old. A room's like 400 baht or something. You sure. Just, I've seen you know, shower, yeah. bed. They're, they're not glamorous. Tad dirty, but they do the job. Yeah. Um, so we get in the place, go out and have dinner, time for bed. And, you know, I'm kind of laying there. I'm not getting to sleep. And, and it's a bit, bit dingy. Um, and the carpet on the ground is like that thin carpet to begin with, but it gets matted down and hard and almost becomes as hard as concrete. You know the kind of carpet I'm talking about? Yeah, it gets a little musty too, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm laying there in the bed, and I'm kind of getting close to sleep, and then I kind of just hear like like light banging and scratching, right? And I'm sort of thinking like, man, where's that coming from? And it's pretty aggressive, right? Like it's, And then I realize it's it's coming from the door, the 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 door to the room and I can't actually just see the door to the room there's a wee bit of a hall but you can see light from under the door and I can kind of see a shadow like a slight wait, wait. slight since shadow. since I've lived in Thailand for a long time I'm gonna yeah. guess it's a ghost it you would be correct with most people <laughs> it was not a ghost although I wondered so I can see a little bit of movement like a tiny bit in the light and I'm like oh my gosh what is there's something actually out there doing this right so I kind of reluctantly like slowly make my way to the door. And as I kind of get closer, it's obvious there's something smallish and it's digging aggressively trying to get under the door. Trying to get in. Yeah, trying to get in. Like it's outside trying to like it's scratching on the other side of the door and kind of banging against the door. And I mean, I just didn't really know what it was. I was like, Jesus. It's a ghost. Weird. Yeah, like what the hell is this? So I wanted to look, but I wanted to like kind of scare it first. So I sort of like bang on the door once and then I open it up and I open as I look out there's like a significant size rat running down the hallway away from my room and I see that there's in the hallway there's kind of uh, some plates and stuff like they've had food ordered up to their room and it's just still sitting out there so the place is filthy and there's obviously rats about yeah so I'm like well you know rats scare easy okay it's gone and I look down at the ground and the thing is the carpet has been like scratched away and it's obvious this isn't this isn't the first time this rat's been scratching there in that place like it spent significant time over probably days and weeks scratching at this point trying to for whatever reason get under and in past this door because the carpet's worn away and the door runs right to the floor like it's it's definitely not getting under and it's not getting through the concrete so i'm just like okay well enough that was weird go to bed yeah, I'm almost number, a, what room number sorry. is this? <laughs> yeah, it was 666, looking back on it. but uh, So I, I go back in bed. I'm almost asleep. And this time, like, the, it's a, the, the thumping is twice as hard. Like, it's come back, and it's now, like, a little pissed off. And I'm, I'm just, I can't believe it by this point, because I'm like, like it, it knows someone's in here. It was scared off. But it's back now with a vengeance. Like, it's had a Red Bull or something, and it, it's pissed, and it wants to get in the room. So same thing, I go out, I, like, pound on the door, open the door, things hightailing it down the hall. And uh, I go back to bed again, and I'm almost asleep, and I hear it a third time. And I just thought to myself, like, okay, well, it's a concrete floor. It's it's not chewing its way through the door. 
I just got to ride it out. So, I mean, as you're sleeping in a room with an angry, large rat on the other side of the door, trying to dig through and get through your door, I just decided I just got to go to sleep. And I somehow managed to get to sleep. And I woke up the next day and there was no rat around. <laughs> had to look at the scratch marks again. But I'm like, I think it's the only time in my life I've gone to sleep with a huge rat actively trying to get in my room. Yeah, you know, you've lived in Asia for a while when, you know, because even I'm thinking about this, I was like, I don't think most of our listeners would, would be real keen on, on staying the whole night in that hotel room. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, it, it was definitely a bit dodgy. And even when I was just telling you, I'm kind of like, yeah, to, like, to get back to sleep, right? But it was late, like, what am I going to do? So we could have changed rooms or something. I mean, yeah, I it wasn't the kind of hotel where the night staff was real sharp. I just thought, well. At least I know what I'm dealing with in this room, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I stayed in some pretty, uh, like, budget guest houses in Luang Prabang, like, that, that are, like, traditional Lao-style houses, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had rats running around on the ceiling above me and stuff. And awesome. Yeah, I mean, not that, that Asia is totally overrun with rats, although here on Silom Road in Bangkok, outside on the street, you see them all the time, yeah? Yeah. But, uh, but Phnom Penh, no rats, yeah? Yeah, and that's something for another episode. You and I, after around Christmas time, walked around a lot and we realized we saw no rats, so somebody's eating them or something. But uh, maybe we'll end on the note of rats and say (laughs) we enjoyed Travel Tales Part 2. Who knows? Maybe a few months down the road we'll have Part 3 and I can try and squeeze in another road story. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure I must have lost something else while hitchhiking or not. (laughs) yeah well thanks very much uh, for listening and also thank you again to Greg's Bangkok the travel app you can find it at app.gregtodiffer.com this is Scott Coates from Kuala Lumpur Malaysia signing off saying so long this is Trevor Ranges in Bangkok Thailand and we look forward to uh, speaking with you again in two weeks thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia we look forward to sharing with you again soon Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia?